So hello, welcome back to Operations and Optimization, uh, the podcast show run by James and myself, Mika. And today we're going to jump into a subject with a technology that had its first deployment in 1977, if I read up correctly now. And um, it has had more than 270 deployments since then. What are we talking about? It's the cryptic uh, four-letter world word FPSO, floating production storage and offloading, and uh, we have a guest with us also this time. So uh, hi, hi there, Mike Willy. Would you like to introduce yourself to to the audience? Yes, hi. Um, so Mike Wiley, I've been uh, in the industry for 43 years. Um, I spent a few years uh, after graduating as a chemical engineer, uh, working for Foster Wheeler Energy, for uh, Total, uh, and then I joined SPM in 1995 to get into the FPSO world and spent 23 years working with SPM on uh, many different FPSO projects, FPSO operations, maintenance, and for the last eight years I was the chief technology officer in SPM. Since then, uh, I set up my own company, Open Water Energy Limited, and there we're specializing in flooding production systems, FPSOs, FLNGs, FSRUs, and FSRPs. So anything that's floating in the energy market. Thank you, Mike. So, I mean, of course, when I I remember, yeah, it's it's uh, some years back. I mean, the first time I I went to an FPSO and, and uh, running commission in Brazil, actually. I mean, enormous vessels, of course, and, and seeing all the technology, the, the processing systems, everything going on top sides here uh, on those. And there's been uh, quite some evolution over the past 10, 15 years, too. And uh, what, 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 what's happening in, in, in the world of FPSOs these days? Mike. Yes, so uh, things are changing um, quite dramatically from the the projects that we worked on 25 years ago. uh, We thought they were huge. We had 5,000 tons of topsides. Now we see vessels with 50,000 tons of topsides. So topsides has uh, really grown enormously. And that's because the, uh, the production rates have increased. You know, in the past we had 40,000, 50,000 barrels a day, and now we've got 250,000 barrels a day. The amount of gas that's being processed has, uh, has gone up, the water injection has gone up, the produced water rates have gone up. But also the, the processing has got more complex. So particularly in Brazil, with the very high levels of CO2, 20, 30, 50% CO2, which is separated, recompressed, and re-injected. So we have uh, large process modules for CO2 removal, which in the past we, we, we hadn't seen. So there's a number of reasons there which are driving the increase in, in topside's weight. Um, and that then leads to the increase in the, the hull size, because to fit that extra topsides onto the vessel, we need more deck space, we need more deadweight capacity. So the hull size has gone up from you know, small um, Suez Max units to start with, even Aframax in harsher environments. Now is the average size is uh, VLCC, but uh, a lot of the new units are actually ULCCs with storage of 
2.2, 2.3 million barrels, 400,000 dead weight. So the, uh, the size of the hull has gone up to fit this larger topside zone and to give the storage capacity needed when you have 250,000 barrels a day, you want 8 to 10 day storage, you need 2, two million barrels plus. So um, both of those things have, uh, have uh, shown a massive increase in the capacity of FPSOs uh, and it's been a steady trend over the last uh, four decades actually. I mean of course, just seeing that top size weight up by a uh, factor of 10 and uh, all the, the hull sizes, etc. I mean, is it sus- <laughs> I mean, sustainable to go that direction, continue on increasing weights and, and sizes or? Um, no, how, I think how, you know. one of the consequences of that is, uh, well, two consequences. The schedule goes up and the cost goes up. No. So now uh, these these massive units are, are taking longer to, to put together. Um, and the capex is such that only a few of the players can actually finance these projects. Um, so they're, they're getting to, I think, around about the limit of what is not technically feasible, but economically and uh, project execution-wise feasible. So now if you need something bigger than 250,000 barrels a day, you'll probably go for two units, not a, a unit which is the 300 or 350,000. I think you, you just start replicating. And that's another um, uh, key trend that we've seen is the standardization. Design one, build many. And um, when I was in SPM, we were working on a project called Fast Forward. And that has been a, a massive success for SPM. Uh, they've now, they're on the seventh replica hull uh, for um, uh, design one, build many approach both for projects in Brazil and in Guyana. Um, and that's really helped to mitigate the, uh, the schedule increase because of the size of the units, but, um, but also to, uh, to try and reduce the capex because you're standardizing and uh, you're not reinventing the wheel on every project, trying to replicate as much as possible and use standard uh, building blocks, uh, both for the hull, which is standard, but also from the top sides where there can be a catalog of top sides modules. Okay. So if, you, if you're looking at putting lots of these different ones together, does that add then even more complexity to the fact you've got two, let's say, rather than having one massive vessel, you end up with two small ones, how you actually split the flow and how you actually design what parts are going to be handled to each individual vessel. Is that something that is also add complexity to it or is that something which you can e- easily engineer out? No, most of these vessels are connected to 10, 15, 20 subsea wells. Yeah. So it's just a question of routing the, the requisite number of wells back to each vessel. Um, and we're not saying two smaller units. Uh, we're just saying two, yeah. 200,000 barrel a day mega yeah. units instead of uh, <laughs> one unit, which is even larger than that. Yeah. I mean, that I think is, uh, yeah, I think is the way of doing it. But it's just, if you're just trying to look at it, I mean, obviously, when you've worked on, worked on very, very big platforms where you've had other subsea tiebacks that come back in again, sometimes getting that balance right has always been a tricky one as well in terms of actually getting that the fluid handled in the right way because some parts of the field may be drier than others. So that's where you know, some of the, the additional balancing needs to be done. And also then you need to have a little bit of capacity or overcapacity built in in order to handle those fluctuations you may get from each individual part of the reservoirs. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a feature of these uh, very big projects 
if you have 200,000 barrels a day, you you have different GORs, you have different water gods, you have different um, emulsion tending form, um, forming yep. tendencies, uh, different um, characteristics of each well, slugging potentials. So, yes, so all that flow assurance uh, issue when you have, particularly in the very deep uh, waters of um, the pre-salt Brazil or Guyana, then, uh, you know, it's, uh, it is a challenge to uh, to manage flow assurance on these fields. Mm-hmm. Is, is it kind of, oh, sorry. James, okay, uh, okay. Yeah, so uh, Brazil has deep waters. Uh, Guyana is, is also growing. I don't know. I mean, Angola maybe also a bit, bit in the same same category. Are those the, the main, uh, let's say, deployment markets? as you see going forward with FPSOs? Also well, certainly future. Brazil is the uh, the hotspot at the moment, mm-hmm. and there are uh, you know, six, eight, uh, ten um, different projects under way at the moment, or prospects are being tendered. So there's a huge number of um, new FPSOs every year coming up in Brazil. Um, Guyana, but that whole province uh, with Suriname as well. Uh, and then West Africa, um, uh, the whole West Africa area, uh, Nigeria, Congo, uh, Angola, and now down into Namibia as well. Uh, there's a lot of potential in uh, all these areas of West Africa. Um, so those are the, the key spots. Uh, there are other projects. Uh, the North Sea still has uh, FPSOs coming up. We have um, um, uh, Asia, uh, China, Vietnam, uh, um, Indonesia, there are quite a few smaller projects over there, but the big ones are certainly in Brazil, Guyana, and West Africa. You think now there's generally the way of the economics we talked about there in terms of doing this and doing the projects, do you think now there's a bigger push more to go with FPSOs? I know it's, it's obviously dependent on deep water and stuff like that, there's a variety of things like that, but even in areas where you traditionally you might have considered, well, we could build a platform or a floater or some other vessel but here we're actually going to go with an FPSO instead now? Do you think that's something that people are actually looking at because of the ability to redeploy it later on or do something with it after the field life? Well the the cheapest and quickest way to develop a field uh, is to find an available FPSO that can be redeployed to your project and recently uh, a, a year ago there were around 20 FPSOs on standby uh, that's dropped now to less than 15, but there's still quite a lot of FPSOs available on the market. And if you can find a good fit to your project requirements, uh, mm-hmm. it can certainly be a very economic way of developing the field. So that's uh, that's one uh, aspect. But in the the North Sea, for example, the uh, the circular FPSOs, the small mm-hmm. ones, 300, 400,000 barrels of storage capacity, um, they can be a very economical solution compared to uh, putting a platform in. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I mean, I think we've certainly seen that on some of these marginal, slightly more marginal fields because I think the costs now associated with doing with, with both, the, not so much the installation, but also the decommissioning and removal later on is going to be so high that potentially FPSOs are far more sensible. Yes, you've still got some subsea infrastructure to remove and some rises, etc. but the majority of the vessel, you can tow it away. You can't sail it away, perhaps, but you can tow it away so it can go somewhere else and be refurbished or redone, which I think is 
to look at the you know the criticisms we always get in terms of this industry and sometimes is if we can show that reusability inside there in terms of what we're doing i think it's something well worthwhile doing looking at yeah yeah so i mean yeah, so. we've seen this circular vessels i mean uh, that was one one let's say technology track and deployment uh FPSOs have evolved over time now it's like uh, design one deploy many like you said, Mike, and, and uh, at the same time, market changes and also like requirements as such, but also the ESG and decarbonization issues. How, how is that affecting FPSOs? Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, so there's more and more pressure to decarbonize the FPSOs to reduce emissions, um, and that's both for stakeholder pressure but uh, but also for financing, and the lenders are becoming much more demanding on the ESG requirements to get project finance. Um, so there are many ways that you can reduce the, uh, the CO2 equivalent emissions. Um, some of those are relatively straightforward, easy to deploy, proven technology, and that, those are generally being done, like uh, closed flare, uh, fuel gas blanketing, these sort of things. Um, but then you go on to other technologies like um, combined cycle power generation, which is technically feasible, is being done now on first three FPSOs, but it takes a lot of space and, uh, and additional capex, but it achieves the, quite a step change in the emissions. So where clients are pushing and willing to pay for that technology, then it is being deployed. And then there are other options like um, carbon capture and storage uh, for uh, for um, gas turbine exhausts which are much more difficult to deploy uh, not yet proven technology offshore and um, are further down the list of things which we will see on FPSOs they will come but it will take longer so there is a whole suite of different technologies which are being and will be deployed over the next few years in order to, to bring down the emissions. And there's a target to get down to less than 10 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per barrel of oil equivalent, which is a, a more than half of where we are today. So there's a lot that has to be done to get to that level by 20, 2030, um, uh, which is the target date for the UK, for example. Yeah, thanks. And how do you see, Mike, the, the, let's say complexity on top sides and, and weight aspects? bringing in also these tech features and, and to bring down CO2 equivalents to, to that level? Well, that's one of the reasons why we see weights going up, um, yeah. because we see um, particularly combined cycle power generation being deployed on the first vessels, which uh, has quite a significant impact on the, the weight and space. So that will only increase the uh, the weights that we see in future and if we are at a limit of uh, say um, 50,000 tons maximum capacity then uh, it may mean that we have to reduce production rates to stay within that 50,000 by um, when we add in uh, the combined cycle power generation for example and of course I think of course all the Let's say the fluids complexity, it, it isn't getting easier to put it that way either. So, I mean, all we have to deal with there in terms of 
reaching a good uh, product quality, separation, etc. And, and uh, adding then also the decarbonization issues here. So uh, I think it's a formidable, formidable challenge yep. for the future too, to deal with all these uh, topics. It is. Uh, one other area we see is more and more gas FPSOs. Um, with the boom in LNG, uh, you see some very big gas FPSOs uh, feeding into uh, to backfeed um, LNG plants. Um, and those are relatively straightforward from a separation and a processing point of view, but uh, it's just very large amounts of gas that have to be processed there for big compression plants, big power plants, uh, big dehydration systems. But... but um, less complex than some of these difficult um, all-water separation issues that we see with heavier heavier oils and uh, tight emulsions. Yeah. I think that's one of the problems I think we're going to have in looking at that balance, as you say, there, is that all the supposedly easier fields have been now developed into the ones which were potentially known about, but are more difficult to produce high levels of CO2, as you said, H2S, more viscous crudes, etc., more solid material as well. So it will be interesting to see just how we manage to continue to produce at those sort of levels because the demand doesn't appear to be going down. That's, no matter what everyone says about the fact is that we're trying to reduce this, uh, the, the global demand for hydrocarbons, whether it's gas or whether it's uh, oil, doesn't appear to really be considerably being reduced at any point. So, yeah. No, I think we will see a reduction in the, the medium term, but in the short term, no, the, the demand is very buoyant. And uh, we see uh, um, quite a backlog of FPSO projects um, under construction, being tendered, under feed studies. So the the FPSO market is going to be really busy for the next few years. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, how's Keep on going, James. Keep on going. <laughs> I was going to ask you to that. I mean, one of the things we've also been talking about is the skill shortages in this business as well now, <laughs> which is associated with lack of people coming into it because they don't see it as being a long-term future, maybe a dirtier industry that you don't want to get into. How are companies, if they see this demand still, you've still got this high demand of being these things being designed and built and operated, how are we managing to keep that and make it work? What's your thoughts on that? That is a, that is a key challenge. Um, um, so there are a number of things that can be done. Uh, one is uh, standardization. So you need less engineering man hours to, uh, to complete each project if you can start from a, a partly pre-engineered solution and you can do a design one, build many. So the engineering side, you can reduce the, the, uh, the resource level. However, uh, for procurement, for uh, supply chain, construction, commissioning, offshore operations, you still need to, um, to have full level of um, personnel on all these sites. So there are some things that can be done. Digitalization offshore, for example, is, um, is helping to reduce the crews offshore and transfer some of the workload from offshore to onshore, where it's easier to recruit people and have like a common onshore support center serving a number of vessels. So that can help. Um, and outsourcing uh, work to... Um, to other areas where maybe skills are easier to acquire, like engineering in India, uh, construction in China, um, that uh, is also being widely deployed. But it is 
It's not just a question of the number of people, it's the experience with the people as well. And um, what, uh, what I fear is that uh, project teams are getting younger, getting less experienced and are making some of the same mistakes that, <laughs> that we made many years ago. Yeah, that, that I think is I think is a common problem. You seen that this? I mean, obviously because of the cyclic nature of this business. Anyway, in fact, it, it, you know, at some point when you know the oil price goes down, projects are cancelled, etc. A lot of the experienced people go, okay, I'm off now. I'm going to go. I've got enough money, or I'm going to go do something else. And then you end up starting this entire cycle again. So I think the idea that you've got of having at least standardised designs that you can go with, but it's also then looking at where you can also get some of that stuff manufactured. Um, because we're also seeing shortages on companies that are able to provide these systems. Because you see amalgamation of smaller companies into bigger ones, and then the bigger ones maybe not interested in this part anymore, they're interested in other things. So again, your pool of where you're going to get the equipment from and the expertise they have as well is also not there. So it's a, it's an interesting challenge that is going to have. I think not just oil and gas, I think most industries are going to have in the next few years. And oil and gas is competing in some areas. So, for example, uh, the boom in uh, LNG means that there are another 50 LNG tankers to be built this year, uh, which is those those orders will go to yards in China and uh, in Korea, which are also competing for some of the FPSO work. Uh, We see onshore plants, refineries, petrochem, uh, LNG plants being more and more modularized these days and uh, built as huge modules in the, in the Far East and then shipped to, to site. And those module yards are the same ones that are competing for FPSO top size modules, for example. So yeah. there's more competition because of modularization, because of the boom in LNG. So it makes it even more difficult to secure quality uh, resources and uh, yard capacity. That's going to be a, a major issue, I think, going forward. I think, as I say, not just for this industry, but for other ones as well, just the raw materials as well, just finding these things. And particularly if you're looking at, we have talked about a bit of the digitalization and that, getting that part to a point where you can actually realistically utilize it correctly and be able to get the right sort of data so you can reduce crews offshore. You know, it's always harder on a FPSO to remove people than you can maybe on a fixed platform because you have the, the other vagaries there of it being a vessel as well, which has other problems on its own thing. You can hardly have an unmanned vessel wandering around the place quite happily. That doesn't really quite work the same way. But, uh, yeah, it's an interesting yeah. one. It is. And so, okay, so what, what I'm hearing to is that, okay, short term, it's a busy, busy area and busy business uh, as such. But competition is there from, let's say, uh, LNG tankers, but also resource-wise to other type of industries and other type, and let's say, Renewable energy, etc., and, and uh, what yards are doing. Uh, we need more, let's say, look at digitalization, automation, where it makes sense, is safe, and, and possible. So, uh, and at the same time, in the backlog, seeing what's happened with, the, let's say, um, evolution of FSO. So, how do you see, let's say, what's your wish list, Mike, for the next ten years on FSO side? The, so what, what we're trying to do is take the experience and the lessons learned from FPSOs and apply it to other floaters. So floating LNG, 
for example, uh, there's, with the price of LNG these days and the demand for LNG, there's, uh, there's quite an uptick of uh, projects um, and prospects for floating LNG systems. And we can learn a lot from FPSO and apply that to, to new LNGs, particularly uh, standardization principles from FPSOs, which can also be applied to FLNG. And then going further downstream to um, LNG to power, so where we, uh, we have FSRUs, floating storage and regas units, feeding power stations, we can combine those two and put the power station on top of the FSRU. Uh, and then you have a, a one-stop shop, you load LNG and you export power. And that's um, got a lot of potential. And again, we can take the lessons down from FPSOs, from FLNG, and apply them to FSRPs, the floating storage, we got some power units. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's uh, to try and move on from FPSOs and uh, use that experience in other floating areas. That sounds exciting, actually, because I think uh, maybe that makes sense, too, because there's such solid track record experience and uh, expertise in what FSOs have been used for and and throughout the whole project execution deployment of those. So uh, I think that's a really exciting next step up. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. That's keeping me busy anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That, that's that's good. So, um, yeah, anything else we should cover, Mike? Or are, are we are we feeling like we have a good good sense of, let's say, uh, f- first stop on FPSOs and uh, the next evolution here? Yeah, I think we've covered a, a lot of different areas there. The, maybe one additional point, which was in the the latest newsletter is the yeah, yeah. Uh, the mooring systems. So FPSOs can either be weather vaning, so they they adjust their heading into the prevailing weather, or they can be fixed heading on uh, spread mooring. And looking at the trend over time of the percentage of FPSOs in the fleet which which have been weather vaning or fixed, uh, I was a bit surprised to find a almost linear trend. So we uh, we started uh, five decades ago with 90% of the units being weather vaning. And today it's only 25% are weather vaning and 75 are fixed heading. And that's um, that's because of the advances in spread mooring technology and offloading technology and the demand for more and more risers and umbilicals, which are easier on spread moored. But... Um, one of the consequences is there are fewer companies now who can do complex um, weather vaning systems. And we still need those for uh, harsh environment, FPSOs for uh, um, cyclonic areas, uh, hurricane areas, um, and for floating LNG. We still need uh, complex weather vaning systems as well. So there's a bit of a concern that um, the domination of spread mooring in the FPSO market is going to make it more difficult to find weather vending systems in future when we need them. And they're certainly going to be more expensive. So um, that's, yeah. that's, that's yeah. one concern um, that, that I have. But it sounds also, thanks, Mike, like uh, listening to this, of course, if you have expertise, knowledge, uh, I mean, 
there's a lot still to do, and and um, in in a variety of disciplines, there's a need for technology, etc. And I think what you have uh, displayed in your newsletter, the Open Water Energy newsletter, there's a lot of good data there. So um, I will also post a link to that in 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 the short description here. But uh, uh, yeah, I think there's. There's a lot of possibilities there in the areas of FPSOs for the future, too. So uh, very appreciative and and thankful for having you on our show here, Mike. Thank you for your contributions. A pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. It's really good. I think it'll be interesting. Maybe we do one in a couple of years' time just to see how many of these things are actually going forward and what's happened with this. Because I think it'll be an interesting period. I think... One of the ones that maybe you've raised a little bit there is also about if we're looking at putting this in harsher environments and let's say where we're seeing more storms or you're seeing larger category hurricanes, et cetera, coming through and becoming more normal. How do we, again, safeguard against issues associated with having to shut down or keep it operating in these areas as well? So there's going to be some interesting challenges going forward and not always straightforward yet. And they're not all known yet either, which is the other part. (laughs) Now and some are moving targets. It's good. But I think it's uh, it's an interesting way of looking at it. If you look at the just the as you think you said at the beginning, the evolution of FPSOs from the early seventies when everyone went, Oh no, we can't possibly do that. To a variety of different shapes that have been tried with us, even the triangular ones, which we know we've tried at some points. And the, the round ones and now you've got all kinds of different huge ones. So it's uh, it's a very interesting uh, evolution going forward. All right. Thank you very much. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you.